0: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, today we are going to be talking about the playwright Theresa Devy, a woman who by rights should be a household name in Ireland, up there with the likes of Sean O'Casey and WB Yeats, but who was
1: airbrushed out of Ireland's theatrical history. She had six plays on in the Abbey, as we say, from 1930 to 1936. And then Ernest Blythe took over the Abbey and rejected outright her uh, final work uh, that she proposed to them called A Wife to James Whelan and said, we have no uh, need of your work anymore. That was performance artist
0: Amanda Coogan there talking about the incredible Teresa Devey, who, as well as being an extraordinary playwright, also happened to be deaf and we'll be hearing much more about her later. But before that, in a recent episode, we focused on those courageous protests happening in Iran and we featured a woman called Mariam Mohit Mafi, who is an Iranian woman living in Ireland and we had a great response to that podcast and Mariam herself emailed us afterwards and I wanted to read it out because I think her email shows the value of solidarity because sometimes when we cover things very far away we think it doesn't make a difference but it all makes a difference and Mariam said I hope you're keeping well the aim for sending this email is saying thank you 1,000 times for being an Iranian voice. During the last month, I received lots of texts from my non-Iranian friends, colleagues and classmates who have listened to the podcast and they said before they didn't know exactly what was happening in Iran and they would no idea about the way Iranian women were being treated. It's all because of you Irish women know about us and are showing solidarity. By the way, it's so heartbreaking for me to hear the news about Iranian women who have been disappeared, raped, tortured and killed during the last two months or the ones who are waiting for their execution only because they are protesting. And at least you really helped us to make our voices heard. Kind regards, Mariam. So, like I said, it does help just highlighting these issues. And if you know anyone in your community, any Iranian women, um, just even showing solidarity can be a really powerful thing. And another story from Iran this week, one of that country's most prominent actors posted an image of herself on social media yesterday, Wednesday, without the headscarf that, as you know, is mandatory for women in the Islamic Republic. Her name is Tarana al and that act of defiance comes in the wake of those incredibly brave protests that we discussed on the podcast um, after the death of Masa Amini. And Amini, as we talked about in the episode, Mariam referred to is um, the 22 year old Kurdish Iranian woman who died in mid September after being arrested by the morality police in Tehran for allegedly flouting the country's strict dress rules for women. And the protest by Tarana al is important because she is one of the best known actors still remaining in Iran. Many of them have had to leave or have been detained. And she's been publicly backing the protest movement, posting that image of herself and also holding up a Kurdish language slogan of the protest movement, reading Yin-Yian Azadi, Woman, Life, Freedom. And she's a really big star. She was in The Salesman, which took the Oscar for best foreign language film in 2017. And she posted that she's not going to leave Iran. She's going to stay and she's going to stop working. She's going to stand by the families of prisoners and those killed. She wants to be an advocate. She says, I'll fight for my home. I will pay any price to stand up for my rights. And most importantly, I believe in what we are building together today. So I just wanted to say that um, on the Women's Podcast, we're thinking of all those women and girls in Iran and the men and boys standing with them. And we're also thinking about the women of Afghanistan who are under the same disgusting laws that restrict their ability to go to school and to live full lives, and we're going to keep talking about it. Do let us know your thoughts. Our email is at thewomenspodcast.irishtimes.com. And thanks again to Mariam for coming on. And I hope she can come on and talk to us another time. Now, today we are discussing Irish playwright Teresa Deevy. And tonight on RTE, there is a documentary being shown
1: about her life called Tribute. The Teresa Deevy story. Teresa Deevy was born in Waterford in 1894, the youngest of 13 children. Closest in age was her sister Nell. She began to study in UCD in 1913. No mean feat for a woman at that time. That same
0: year, made by the wonderful performance artist Amanda Coogan, who has been on this podcast before. Teresa Devi, in case you don't know, and many of you might not know, was an extraordinary writer who had six plays on in the Abbey in the 1930s before being sidelined, blocked from producing work for the National Theatre, and airbrushed out of the history of theatre in this country. We'll be talking about why, and you can sort of imagine why yourself. Apart from being an incredible writer, and through her work. A commentator on life in Ireland, particularly the life of women in Ireland and the way their choices was restricted. She was also a deaf woman, and that's how Amanda Coogan, the child of deaf parents, came to be so interested in her work. The documentary, which I urge you to watch because it's brilliant, is on RTE tonight, but you can also catch it on the RT player in coming days and weeks. I spoke to Coogan from her home in Belfast about the making of the documentary, about the life of DV, and about why we need to celebrate the legacy of this amazing woman. But I began by asking Amanda Coogan about her own life growing up as the daughter of deaf parents.
1: I'm what you call a CODA. So a CODA is uh, this uh, beautiful term for a child of deaf adults is actually what uh, it uh, stands for. And so that means that my parents are deaf and in and my parents are deaf sign language users as well. So in the house when I was growing up, I was the firstborn. born. It, Mum and dad communicated in sign language. And I would have deaf cousins and deaf aunts and uncles. And so my parents were really very, very involved in the deaf community, very involved in agitating for deaf equality and deaf rights and the recognition of Irish sign language. And we did get the bill, the what we call the ISL bill in 2017. So it's 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 been an amazing journey. You know, for somebody like me, uh, I was born in 71 and... In the 70s, we didn't sign outside of the house. It was, you know, we didn't want to draw attention to ourselves. It was, you know, the monkeys gesturing at the bus stop as we're waiting for the bus. You know, all of these kind of uh, nodes. And, And so we just didn't want to be different. So we just kind of didn't speak on the street. And inside the house was a different story. Or we didn't sign on the street, rather. Inside the house is a totally different story. And then we, when we went to the deaf club, that's <laughs> where the deaf community met every weekend. And we code as the little kids just ran wild, amok. <laughs> we went inside those uh, the the uh, door of the deaf club. It used to be in Rathmines, and then it was in Drumcondra, and now they have a wonderful deaf village in Cabra. But we get inside there, everybody signed. Mum and dad were at different meetings, tried to agitate for, you know, equal car insurance and <laughs> getting better rights and this, that. And we just ran amok and screamed our heads off because nobody told us to be quiet. So mostly you would go to the Deaf Club at the weekends and just scream for the whole weekend, running around with your pals. You know, we were all cold yeah. We all had
0: Fantastic. This- And all of that's really relevant to all of your work, I think. It feeds into all the things I've seen that you do or anything that you've been involved in, but particularly with Teresa Devi, So tell us about how you came to do this amazing programme about her.
1: Well, she's she's just a fantastic figure with an amazing legacy of work left behind. She is from Waterford and she was born in in the late 1800s. 1894 in Waterford to a very well to do business family and uh, went to UCD to study, which is also an amazing thing in the um, uh, early 1900s and went deaf from Meniere's disease. So this piqued my interest as well. We're always I collaborate a lot with the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf and we're always looking to uh tell stories of the deaf community, the history of the deaf community within the work that we do, and also look for deaf role models. And Leanne Quigley, the very brilliant um, artistic director of the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf and chairperson of the Irish Deaf Society, came along to me many years ago saying, oh my goodness, look at this person. Like literally, she is a deaf woman who wrote plays and and was very very successful she had six plays on in the Abbey Theatre in the 1930s
0: amazing and she was deaf that this is the thing so she i mean the thing is that could happen to somebody and it could mean it could mean the end of any ambition it could mean you just lay down and kind of say well that's my life over now but that wasn't what she did like she went to London tell us what she the did tenacity there asked
1: that was amazing so she went especially over.
0: at that time for a woman again yeah. yeah
1: she went over to London uh, to study lip reading. And as part of the lip reading training, she used to go to the theatre and she would read the plays beforehand and go and see how they were manifest in the in, in the understanding that she'd train herself. Lip reading is a tremendously difficult skill uh, for a profoundly deaf person, especially. Um, and while she was in the theatre, she was writing letters back and forth. And we have these wonderful letters and they're all in the archive in Maynooth. Maynooth have a Teresa Devi archive in there and brilliantly pre- preserving her legacy and her, her work. And she wrote home saying that um, she'd just seen a George Bernard Shaw play Heartbreak Hotel. And she said, I'm really interested. This is um, to try and see if I can tell Irish stories in this way. But if I tell a story of Ireland and the experience in in rural Ireland and Waterford at the time, and so started her journey of writing and she was tenacious within that. A phenomenal, phenomenal story.
0: I mean, you tell in the the programme of how I think there was this six-year period where she had a play published every year. And in fact, in one year she had two plays, which is... Kind of incredible. No playwright does that. So she was really prodigious and she was writing these plays, which a lot of them had women as the central characters. And she was telling the story of women at that time in Ireland, which again was sort of not what was happening with O'Casey and other, well, although O'Casey was writing about women too, but you know.
1: Yeah, but I I suppose when you're writing from the experience, it's, uh, one could say it's a different, it's it's another perspective than O'Casey. She was heralded as the next O'Casey or the Irish Chekhov. And really very excited, uh, there's an awful lot of people very excited about her work at the time. But the key is that she wrote from the female perspective, but she also wrote about the kind of oppressive um, choices that women had in those days. Uh, and my son's at Dublin, Theatre of the Deaf appropriated one of her plays in 2017 called the, A King of Spain's Daughter. And in it, the main protagonist is uh, uh, a woman called Annie Kinslet, for example, and Annie has a choice of marrying a man that she patently doesn't love or going to the mainland and working in a factory, which she knows she'll hate. And so within those awful life choices that were the only um, way for women at the time uh, and her father threatened to beat her, uh, which was just normal, like, you know, the quiet man where John Wayne pulls and drags Maureen O'Hara across the fields, like, uh, you know, that kind of just acceptable violence. But within that, she writes about Annie as having this magnificent, creative inner life and that her inner life sustains her. This idea of, you know, dreaming of being the king of Spain's daughter, of being this wonderfully glamorous um, woman and having amazing adventures, off the island or outside of the limitations that her real life was. So we see it all the time, this tension within Dee's work. And I suppose one of her most famous plays is Katie Roach. And in 2017, the Abbey did um, a beautiful production of Katie Roach. And Katie Roach was an illegitimate girl who who lived in a big house and was uh, uh, about to marry uh, the man of the house. So again, um, speaking of illegit- illegitimacy at the time was almost unheard of. I mean, we know we are living through remembering the legacy of the institutions and what happened to women who got pregnant outside of wedlock and all of those awful traumas that brilliantly, as an Irish society, we're dealing with and remembering and trying in some way to apologise for and... Uh, recover uh, those reputations. So uh, she was talking about them at the time and you know for the documentary I went down to Waterford and I met her niece grand niece, maybe, uh, Claire Brazel, fantastic woman who had stayed with Deevy. Deevy lived in Waterloo Road in Dublin and then went back to the family home which is called Landscape, a very beautiful house in Waterford just in the city and uh, uh Claire stayed with her in um uh, Waterloo Road in Dublin uh, for summers, and she said she was brilliantly eccentric, but actually Claire was telling us that she had a brother called Father Jack, who was a priest who was totally against the kind of uh stories that d v was writing you know she she shouldn't be talking about uh, uh, female desire the, the the notion of sexual of female sexuality the the notion of illegitimacy, the notion of self determination, even even if it's in a a, a fantastical way that she writes these things, and and really and there was
0: criticism of the church in her work as well, which she wouldn't have been too pleased about being a priest.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know the the kind of fascinating thing we have no documentary evidence, but I have the joy of being an artist and not uh, um, an academic, is that. She had six plays on in the Abbey, as we say, from 1930 to 1936. And then Ernest Blythe took over the Abbey and rejected outright her uh, final work uh, that she proposed to them called A Wife to James Whelan.
0: Can we just go into that a little bit? Because you set the scene very well in the documentary where you kind of talk about this new Ireland that's emerging. So the Constitution has been or is being written is being written. Um, you know mm. we're sort of deciding who we are as a nation and Ernest Blythe was a former minister in the government and he was very much with De Valera in the kind of idea of Ireland that they wanted to create which was this oppressive to women kind of keeping women in their place in the constitution there was that line about which is still there a woman's place is essentially in her home um, and here was Theresa Devy who was writing work that was completely contrary or counter the counter narrative to that and, and your man Ernest Blythe who was managing director of the Abbey basically put a kibosh on her playwriting career. She, he wrote her this letter, didn't he, when she, she submitted this play?
1: Yeah, and said, we have no uh, need of your work anymore.
0: Don't submit any more work to us, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah, literally outright. And that play post- was up. rejected. That play was rejected. And and interesting, the Constitution was published in 1937, the next year, probably within months of that, reject her being, I suppose, ousted.
0: Her being sort of told in a way, keep to your lane and get back to your house and maybe just yeah, be a, a yeah, woman in the way no, we know.
1: We, we have no need of these kind of stories. Yeah.
0: But, but it's just to reiterate again, I know you did say it earlier, like she was the kind of new Shona Casey. The, the Abbey was looking for the next big thing. She kind of was it. She was prolific. She was acclaimed. She was getting all the accolades. So she was poised to do that. And he said, no more. We don't
1: want your stuff. Absolutely lauded, fated, really excited. People were very, very excited about the story she was telling. Um, we. Oh, I, I think we have to frame it as well in that she was a deaf woman, so she couldn't have the pints in the flowing tide or wherever, wherever there was uh, the equivalent at the time. You know, her sister Nell kind of acted as a kind of an interpreter for her. But I would say, and, and knowing deaf people as as well as I do, Crowds and groups of people, it's very, very difficult to manage the communication in those. So I suppose that she was quite singular. She wrote her work. She submitted it. It was produced. She went back. She wrote more. So it wasn't all that uh, lovely networking or the boys club as it was then. She And so she was ousted and could do nothing about how uh, the, the rejection started. I mean, she did. It wasn't the end of her she did move on to write radio plays that were produced for the BBC and for RTE. But you know, when she went deaf, radio wasn't invented. So she didn't know what radio was. And we know it's actors standing at microphones. There's not very much body communication through the body. It's all through the vocal cords and how you produce something in words uh, in this beautiful linear way. And, she, we have letters of her asking permission for a pass into RT, the Ortie recording studios so that she could stand outside the window and watch how the actors were speaking her lines. I, 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 the tenacity is so inspirational. She's just amazing.
0: Because she wanted to, um, even though it was radio, she wanted to kind of experience her plays even though there wasn't going to be any props or costumes or anything or like that. Or any just wanted kind to of
1: movement it. or embodiment yeah. for it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm just, I don't want to labour this point at all. But I mean, honestly, watching your programme, when that letter comes from Ernest Blythe, like I wanted to, I was raging. I mean, it's yeah. so typical of what still happens to people, to women today, you know, being overlooked and undermined and not being given their voice. I mean, it makes me so sad. And I know she wasn't in the Palace or the Flowing Tide or whatever the pubs were. She wasn't able to do all that, but... Did like who was around then? Who could have gone? Hang on a second. What man? Why wasn't she championed by anyone? Why wasn't there anyone to go? Hang on a second. We need to get Teresa Devi riding for the Abbey. Was there nobody who was championing her and could have stopped? Well, Ernest Blythe,
1: uh, Lennox Robinson championed her from the very beginning, and he directed her work, encouraged her all the time, uh, and uh, you know the the lovely gossipy bit is that um. Uh, W.B. Yates didn't like her because she didn't let him rewrite parts of her play, which is great. Right. I love that. I know. She had great letters from Jack. Jack B. Yates and herself had a great relationship and he really admired her work. Uh, But who who knows? We don't understand what happened in 36. uh, That it was a full stop no more. Um, And it seems that uh, any of her champions, Lennox Robinson, uh, any of the other uh, people who championed her. She had great letters from Frank O'Connor as well. We have no evidence of what happened, all, only that she never had another play produced on the Abbey stage or any and, and main you know, stage when, in Ireland.
0: When we think of that, Amanda, you just think about the um, perspectives and the 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 voice that she could have brought to that emerging ireland and perhaps the influence that someone like Trita Evie could have had on on the, especially the way women were went on to be treated in ireland it's it's a massive massive loss i think we need to say it in those terms
1: yeah absolutely in that sliding door moment what what would the legacy for us as as w- uh, women of ireland and uh, as or uh, as you know, creatives in Ireland. What would could that legacy have been? And I think you know, it's also really, really important to find these figures in history that we can go. Okay, they were there. It's not that everybody was bringing up children, and you know, their place was it at the kitchen uh, uh, in the house. They weren't all locked in uh, in that way that they were producing. Exciting, uh, formidable and kind of groundbreaking work.
0: Yeah, because you and I have spoken before about um, visual artists, you know, the, the amazing work done by women at a time when people, again, who were airbrushed out, but who were quietly working away, producing incredible work, but you don't, they didn't get showcased in the way same way that the men's work did. So, but just as good, just as brilliant as, as the Absolutely. And when we
1: think of the Eight Sisters as well, and that whole... um group of women and they have beautiful exhibition on uh on those in the National Gallery of Ireland Um, and Evie Hone and all those great um symbolist painters from that era we are absolutely we build our work on the shoulders of these giants um yeah and remembering them and re-exploring their work Nana Reed. um uh, 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 you, the, 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 there's 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 so many of them that I think, you know what I think is really interesting, is this, decade of centenaries, has been quite interesting in terms of how we have looked at the legacy of women. You know, the great unveiling or unairbrushing of Elizabeth O'Farrell was almost the the watershed moment. I that's a little simplistic to say that, but that. As uh, women of Ireland were go, going, what, ha, you know, it's not right to say that women never contributed or very few women contributed to the building of our new republic. That they were there, that they have just been forgotten by the history writers. Um, and so to unearth that, I think, is really, really important. And dee and- certainly is one of those. Uh, towering figures and she was in Coming Amon wasn't she uh, Divi was in Coming Amon in um, Waterford and uh, yes uh, 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 seemingly knew Markovic and um, uh, was involved in the fight for the Republic yeah for the the, the evolution and the revolution that that is that the Republic and I speak to you here from Belfast so it's always very <laughs> very very interesting to explore legacy from this island, uh, yeah. from the perspective of uh, post-conflict Belfast and, and the reverberations of the civil war uh, for this place on the island. you know, It always excites me to just read what was happening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. So let's go back to Theresa because you 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 then are working through the documentary. We see you working on this piece, possession, um, with with the theatre for the deaf and with the those brilliant um women from that. And it's really interesting because I've I've never seen a documentary where there's a lot of silence because obviously you guys are sign languageing to each other. I think that's it's Mind the Gap Films made the documentary. It's fantastic, but I love the boldness of that that you're actually. Watching telly and for quite a few couple of minutes you don't hear anything.
1: Yeah, I just mean, it's a really brave decision from Claire Dix. Claire Dix is the filmmaker who directed this and she has she has a wonderful over of work herself. And I was absolutely thrilled when Bernadine, Bernadine Carraher from Mind the Gap Films, uh brought myself and Claire together. Just a dream a dream team. She's an amazing artist. Um, And I was thrilled to work with them. But Claire was so brave, I suppose, um, to... to, to, They recorded myself and Leanne Quigley and Alvin Jones, who are these brilliant deaf artists who lead the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf. And the three of us just sitting around working things out. What are we going to... Oh, my goodness. How are we... How are we going to approach this? What are our ideas? What are... So we used sign language, and this is fascinating. We used Irish Sign Language as um, the kind of uh, groundwork for the choreography that we made in this. But actually, Irish Sign Language is one of the most gendered languages in the world. Phenomenal. Uh, In Dublin, they had two schools for the deaf. So if you had a deaf child, we know we institutionalised everybody. Uh, If you had a deaf child in those days, you sent them to Dublin. My father was sent to Dublin. And they went to the boys' school in Capricorn, St. Joseph's, or the girls' school in St. Mary's. And they both signed completely different vocabulary. Wow. So, what we now, uh, women's signs, as we call it, that's uh, so elegant. The women's signs are so elegant. Like, it's, it's, it's uh, so gorgeous. We really sign men's signs now, with a few leftovers really? of women's signs. But the women's signs is dying out. It's women in their 80s, really. Uh, who still would use it and they sign in these particular vocabulary when they're together. So at the moment in the deaf nursing home, uh, pockets of older women would sign these signs and they code shifted, as we say, when they married deaf people, mostly uh, marry other deaf people, by the way. Okay. (laughs) Uh, When they married, then they just took on the men's sign version for ideas and concepts and, and words. So we... Only use women's sign variation as this kind of foundational stone for the choreography of it. So, for example, the men's sign for white is you would kind of touch your neck. So it means with your index finger. And so it means you're touching kind of uh, you're making reference to the color of a shirt or the white part of uh, the color of a shirt. Yeah. 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 And the women's sign for it, you touch your other hand with your index finger. So it refers to the white gloves that they would have used. They would have worn in the late 1800s. It's just so beautiful. And the women's, um, women's sign variation has much more relationship to France and French sign language. And our men's sign variation has much more relationship to ASL, American Sign Language. So we still use um, uh, two different ways to say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> and in the women's sign, we say Friday with a V across your chin, which is Vendredi, of course, because ah. uh, uh, of the French. French. It's, it has, the V has no relevance to Friday for us, but it's the gorgeous heritage of, yeah. uh, of the language and how it came so, so
0: that's a whole other amazing thread running through the documentary like it's a, it's a fascinating insight into all of that too
1: it is and you know as as an artist building a, a piece of work you have so many layers to it and it's not completely necessary for me to make those overt to the audience but it has to be a rich kind of all of these ingredients have to have a kind of a honesty and truthful place that they came to but uh, Well, I I think
0: apart from the the showcasing Teresa, which it does beautifully, it also showcases this uh, other world that a lot of people don't see, which is a world where people are communicating with their hands and using sign language. And that is going on everywhere. But, you know, a lot of us aren't aware of it. So I think it's a great showcase for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's uh, I I mean, the piece is very much about Teresa Devi, but it's actually about deaf artists or uh, uh, taking her legacy, making something new, I suppose, making something Uh, investing in uh, their history and championing deaf women artists. I mean, Katrina McLaughlin, we talked to Katrina McLaughlin, um, the new Abbey director in the documentary, and she brilliantly says, yes, she was deaf. Yes, she, you know, that triple oppression moment. Yes, she was a woman, but it's irrelevant to the quality of the work.
0: Yeah, that's a great moment. She just says he, she was a writer who happened to have a disability. Yeah. And that and in that time, in the 30s, 1930s, to, to be for that to be the secondary thing about her is extraordinary. It's
1: extraordinary. This woman's work is extraordinary, not only for the themes, not only for the quality of the writing and uh, the quality of the ideas, but that also she had uh, the, the small issue of not being able to hear people speaking and not being able to communicate directly with people.
0: And just going back to your to her grand niece, I mean, she was it was interesting listening to her because she was quite the eccentric. I mean, you cycle around the place in this documentary, you probably cycle anyway. Theresa cycled everywhere. She didn't care about what clothes she wore. She wasn't interested in eating particularly. Like there's one gasp bit where the grand niece says she went to her house for sausage and chips. The sausages that were boiled, and she put some potato crisps under the grill and that was sausage and chips according to Teresa Devi.
1: There was these fantastic stories and hoking around in a drawer with her underwear to get and retrieve some stale biscuits. <laughs> it's fantastic. And she used to sack it around, you know, and accidentally there'd be like a, a coat hanger hanging out of her coat because she was just too...
0: And I mean, again, if we go back to your man, Ernest Blythe, I mean, just not the kind of woman that um, in any way modern Ireland, this new Ireland, this devil era Ireland wanted. They wanted them, you know, beautifully turned out at home and dancing at the crossroads, you know, literally.
1: And 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 uh, yes. And baking bread and feeding people properly. And that was not
0: Teresa. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned at one point at the end, kind of like, I know you were trying to get the spirit of, of her into the room as you made this piece. And I should say it's a ballet,
1: actually, that she wrote, which well, is
0: another interesting thing. Say a little bit about the ballet first.
1: So I knew a lot of her work from working on King's Spain's Daughter in 2017 with the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf. Um, but then I was awarded one of those brilliant Markovich Awards, uh, which gave, gave me research time uh, to look at women, the decadent centenaries. And um, I had a gorgeous proj- project about deaf women. And through this research period, I came across Possession, which is three pages of a treatment for a ballet. Now that, Rosine is like mana from the artist's universe coming down into my lap. Because you know, I'm a performance-based uh, visual artist. I don't often use text or words within my work, or I treat it very differently to our, I suppose, our literary theatre. And she, Teresa Devi's work, is literary theatre. It is based on script and 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 how it manifests from that. So I'm definitely coming from a sideways perspective at that as um, a performance-based visual artist. But this is a ballet. <laughs> and I use movement and gesture based on Irish sign language. This is a ballet from a deaf playwright. It's <laughs> My head is blown by the potential of, of it. Um, and so we we dived into it. But also it is her take on Antoine, our kind of foundational Irish myth. And she tells it from Queen Maeve's perspective as well. Of
0: course so she again, does.
1: Of course she, of course she does. this, Teresa Deeby. So again, she's also flickering this foundational Irish story. And we know it, I know it from the brilliant Louis Labrocki Lebrock, and the uh, Kinsella uh, translation and the magnificent tapestries that Le Labrocki uh, uh, made then, of course, always the visual artist. You can't take me out of the visual arts world, but, um, <laughs> which is all about war and gatherings and battles and Cú Cullan And I think he has one image of Queen Maeve pissing which actually I absolutely adore. That's that. cool, yeah. But <laughs> Divi then took uh, this and really tells the story of this, the, the want of possessing the bulls. The white bull she possesses and then King Alil, her husband, takes it or the, the bull moves to that, to his side. And then she goes looking for the brown bull and she goes to Dara in the... Cooley Peninsula and uh, through a little bit of schadenfreude they lose the brown ball and everyone starts fighting and murdering each other and death and destruction is everywhere and she talks about this little treatment this three-page treatment talks about Maeve literally being distraught at looking at the devastation that the want of possession has brought upon us and uh, so I'm, I really read it as a huge anti-war play. We, we don't know when she wrote it. We think it was probably around the 50s. I like to muse that it was possibly at the start of the border campaign. Who knows? Um, who knows? This is just musing from an interpreter yeah. of her work and somebody who wants to do great service to her over in those yeah. ways. But it's just a magnificent... Take on a great Irish story, which I don't know how we framed the time.
0: Myths, isn't it? And yeah, part of and our cultural th- myths.
1: It is, and, yeah. and and kind of really fundamental to a lot of of the stories of this island, and massively, and, yeah. yeah. And 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 gorgeously, the Ulster, Ulster cycle, gorgeously contentious when when you're speaking <laughs> of, uh, of it. And
0: again, it's so ambitious of her. I mean, the, yeah. a ballet based on that, like it's you know
1: huge yeah and uh, and again as a deaf woman she gives notes of how she thinks the music should be loud now thumping quiet uh, the spirits of pity and remorse all of these notes yeah. she has on the um, musical element I'm hoping I'm <laughs> hoping to do a full scale production of it because actually what we did was we took four scenes right and made um, the possession project up to now And we made it in the Hulane Gallery and in Athai for their Sign and Sing Festival. It's a small deaf community festival in Athai. And we did it down in Waterford just a couple of weeks ago for the Imagine Festival. Um, We've been working really closely with the SETU, former Waterford Institute of Technology and now now changed to um, Southeastern Technical University. And they have two um, uh, lectures in the... Drama Department, Una Keeley and Kate McCarthy, who are experts on Devi's legacy. Of course, Brilliant. her being from Waterford and they were absolutely amazing in this journey. And Claire followed us meeting and chatting and they were literally showing me some letters of DV when she was men- mentoring another playwright, James Chasty. And so I was almost getting mentoring from D V as I was <laughs> make- going through via Secondhand Una mentoring. and Katie. It I was really, it. really, really very, very rich.
0: There's another great moment where you go um to this guy in New York from the Mint Theater Production Company which I thought was amazing because this guy specializes in uncovering forgotten playwrights and he went on a journey with Theresa DV and put on her plays in New York which is amazing. I
1: have to say I think that we can only point the fi- to this rediscovery of DV's work is it Jonathan Bank and the Mint Theater in New York are to blame for it wonderfully because He, uh, the Mint have a remit to look at a forgotten plays. Uh, And he went through the Abbey's list of productions and literally wrote down all the women's names. And as I said, I wrote down the women because they're the ones mostly that are forgotten. And he said, he just kept writing Teresa Deeve. Oh, she had another one. Teresa Deeve, oh, she had another one. (laughs) Teresa Deeve, oh, she had another one. And he took himself off to New York's public library. And because she was published, she had some, some of her plays published. He was able to like within a couple of days Amazing. get his hands on the work and he decided really really shrewd really cleverly to put on he thought one play of hers was not going to be enough to kind of really explore her legacy and her work and see was her reputation was her reputation worth remembering and is it um, worthwhile producing these things and he thought one wasn't going to be enough two three and so he ended up putting on Wife to James Whelan, which is the very play that the Abbey and Ernest Blythe rejected and got amazing um, notice in the New York Times. The review said the Abbey made a mistake in 1936. Oh my God, I the love Abby that. The Abbey made, made a
0: mistake in the New York Times, no less. And that play had never been put on before. Never presume, been put on it was rejected. before, no. The first time it gets put on is in
1: New York, Yeah, right? isn't that amazing? Years later, yeah. decades later. And it's from that that Leanne Quigley, the brilliant deaf artist, heard of her right. and came along going, Amanda, I think I know what our next project <laughs> is. And so since then, we've been really investigating her work. But Possession it is is really much uh, more fit to my work and the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf. Always, the, our collaboration is, always, is really wonderful, always very, very rich, but they are theatre makers. And I'm an artist that works mostly in the gallery and uh, museums. But with possession, I think all of everything is colliding yeah. beautifully. So I'm really, really hoping to make a full, full production. And the very brilliant composer, Linda Buckley, is uh, hoping to compose the full ballet for yes. us as an opera. So we would use um, Dee Lee's words, her treatment for this ballet as the libretto. And I'm, I'm envisioning these two joined together figures one of them signs and one of them sings, but they're, they're literally tied together. They're two, the it. two heads are the two sides of the one character. I'm, I'm very, amazed. I'm very excited.
0: Oh God, Amanda, I'm very excited now listening. But look, the, the programme is on tonight, um, but people can watch it back on RT Player as well. And I, I just have to urge everyone listening, honestly, you're going to not want to miss this programme because you you get you get enraged for her you get in you're inspired by her you're in awe of this woman she was a fantastic person that we should be uncovering and remembering and celebrating and she should never have been brushed in into the sidelines as she was um, and yet she did, as you say, go on to radio. She was huge audiences in the BBC and she was respected. But it's just a, a national disgrace that she was not allowed to continue to be a voice when we needed it. A voice of women when there were so few of them. So I think what you've done in this programme is is so important, Amanda.
1: And thanks a million, Roshan and the Women's Podcast, which I'm a super fan of, for, for, <laughs> for letting us also explore her within this and... Uh, uh, and remember her here. I really appreciate it. And uh, I recommend everybody to have a little look at her life and legacy and producer plays. Producer yes, plays.
0: exactly. Producer plays. And also, I just want to say it again, is that I also think this programme is very special because of the fact that it's got all that sign language in it. And we're, we're glimpsing a community that we don't normally see in that way, where the disability isn't the story. Yeah. The art is the story. And that's what's so important. So well done again.
1: Brilliant. Thanks a million, Roshi.
0: That was Amanda Coogan there. And as I mentioned earlier, the documentary is on tonight on RTE, but also you can watch it on RTE Player. It really is a great celebration and an honouring of, of a woman who should be as well known as Sean O'Casey. That's all we have time for today. The podcast is produced by me, Roshi and Ingle by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on the sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.